So, what I'd like to speak about tonight is the subject of truthfulness and resolve. Both truthfulness and resolve are what are called or known as paramis. And the word parami is translated in different ways. One way is as a virtue of heart. Another way is as a sense of inner wholeness or completeness. So it's an inner sense of the recognition of completeness within. And it's to know something, in this case, truthfulness or resolve, to know truthfulness from a number of different angles. So not just from one angle, but from a number of different angles. And that's true for resolve as well. A sense of inner completeness or a sense of inner wholeness is sometimes what this word parami is translated as. So I'd like to begin, of course, by talking about truth or truthfulness and to read something from the Samyutta Nikaya. A questioner asked the Buddha, Life seems a tangle, an inner tangle and an outer tangle. This generation is hopelessly tangled up. Just kind of cracks me up. This generation 2,600 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And so I asked the Buddha this question, Who will succeed in disentangling this tangle? And the Buddha replied, When a wise one thoughtful and good, develops a greater consciousness, she or he will understand the tangle. As a truth follower, ardent and wise, he or she will succeed in disentangling the tangle. So we here now are truth followers, exactly as in the time of the Buddha. This is really what we are, is followers of the truth. And we are here for a number of different reasons. If we went around the room, everyone would have their own unique situation and their own unique reasons. But as a community, as a collective, we're here because of a yearning to see clearly. You know, you don't show up in a meditation retreat if you don't want to see clearly. Sometimes it's hard what we see, of course, but it is a yearning that each one of us has some kind of confidence, some kind of faith that seeing clearly is going to be the way out, is going to show us the exit sign. We do yearn to disentangle the tangle So the first thing that we see, of course, when we look, we see the outer tangle. And we see that we can be so immersed in the culture and habitually follow the bidding of the worldly winds. There are eight worldly winds, as we know, of praise and blame, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, and fame and shame. There are a lot of different ways you can talk about these worldly winds, but 
to rhyme them helps to <laughs> is a way to remember them. So there are praise and blame, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, and fame and shame. And these are said to be the winds in a world that push us around. And then it's how we respond to these winds that really matters, but that all beings are subject to being blown around by these winds, and no one, no one is exempt. Even those that we may think, of course, they've got to be exempt, their life looks like this or that. I recently spoke about this in in Cambridge, and I, I said, could anybody think of somebody who is exempt? And someone said, George Clooney. (laughs) but obviously not so he's got a very bad back from what I hear (laughs) and sometimes we can think that if we're very adept at the path and if we've gone a far enough way that we'll kind of outrun the winds but it's actually not true even the Buddha couldn't outrun the winds it was just that he didn't suffer because he was able to respond to the worldly winds in a liberated way. So, you know, we can have this spiritual idealism that you get to a certain attainment or a certain point and you won't have to deal with these things anymore, but it's kind of a spiritual fantasy. It's not so. It's is so that we can work with these winds in such a way as to not be blown around. But it doesn't mean that the worldly winds aren't present. So, instead of being completely immersed in and habitually following, we step back and we observe without condemning and without judging, as if we weren't part of the whole thing. Because something that we need to do is to observe the significant place of desires and of our attachment to appearances in our lives. The world is set up to seemingly satisfy our desires. I mean, if we can shift from thinking about the world as a a field of seeming satisfaction, shift instead into an appreciation and gratitude for the world at times, then we're not going to be trying, trying, trying to get a kind of satisfaction that actually can never be found. You know, following our desires, we can't ever be satiated because what comes about is only more desire. It's really a way to create more desire. And so there can be so easily an over-focusing on forms and on appearances. And at some point or another, we wake up and we recognize samsara, the endless realm of birth and death. And I have um, an example of samsara. One example of samsara is like a, a gerbil wheel that's going around and around and around and around, you know, and the gerbil is on the wheel and going around and around and around and around and doesn't doesn't stop, doesn't know how to stop. I have a very um, wonderful favorite comic 
of two gerbil wheels. This has to do with samsara and getting off the wheel. So in this little comic strip, there are two wheels, and there's a hamster on both of the wheels, of course. And on one of the wheels, it's what we would expect. You know, you see the hamster going around. Is it a gerbil or a hamster? Probably hamster, right? Yeah. Gerbil? Hamster? Gerbil. Okay. So gerbil going around and around and around on this wheel. And obviously getting exhausted, and but, you know, really trying. And then, right next to this particular gerbil, there's another um, gerbil wheel. So the wheel is going around and around and around, but the gerbil is kind of spread out in an extremely relaxed kind of position, you know, like, like on a beach in Hawaii with a pina colada or something, you know. And underneath this particular gerbil, who has stopped? What the caption is, is, I had an epiphany. <laughs> I've gotten off of the wheel. Yeah, I've had an epiphany. I have a um, a strong connection with the country of um, Burma, of Myanmar. I've been going there for many years. At this point, I'm part of a grassroots organization called Metta in Action, of composed of Dharma teachers, just five or six of, of us Dharma teachers, who go and try to support those who are very impoverished in Burma. And last time I was there was this past January before so much ethnic violence broke out that absolutely breaks all of our hearts. But in January, it was really before all that had happened, all of what is going on now had happened. And so it was the same country of pagodas and temples and you know, these reminders of the Dharma, um, wherever you look. I was up in Kala, which is um, in Upper Burma, and I walked by a hotel. The name of the hotel was the Parami Hotel. Now, instead of the Hotel California, it was the Parami Hotel. So there's all these reminders of the Dharma going around. You know, you, you are awake, awoken by chanting um, Dharma teachings and and Buddhist chanting at sometimes three or four in the morning, whether you want to be awoken or not. I was um, in an agricultural village a, a few years ago, and um, we were all awoken uh, at three o'clock by um, uh, somebody talking in Burmese, and so maybe just assuming that it was a Dharma talk but not knowing much about it. So afterwards we asked kind of what was up, you know, why was somebody giving a Dharma talk at three in the morning? And in this agricultural village, as is true in any agricultural situation, people have to get up really early to take care of their animals and, you know, start in at the field. So people get up really early. But I guess, you know, it kind of in just exploring and trying to discover what was really going on at three in the morning with um, someone speaking in Burmese, finding out that, yes, indeed, it was a Dharma talk, and that their routine is that they are awoken at three with a talk, and then they just stay cozy in bed for an hour and listen to that talk, and then they get up at four o'clock to take care of their animals and go out into the fields. 
So that's kind of the beginning of their day. On this particular trip in this past January, I was um, taking a a trip to take an older um, Burmese couple, quite on the older side, um, parents of a a friend of mine there. We were taking this um, Burmese couple to a place where there are many um, ancient temples, really old temples where people have practiced for who knows how long they they feel quite ancient when you're when you're in these pagodas and and these temples in a place called Bagan. So we decided to take this couple because they had wanted to go visit these temples for their whole life, but because of not having money or resources or capacity to go, this kind of thing, um, they couldn't go. So it was kind of like a one of those wonderful things to be able to to take them. And a very dear couple, a very, a very touching um, couple, and um, kind of made me remember when I first began to practice, which was in my early 20s. And um, I was looking for why I was practicing. I mean, I was pretty much desperate, and I had done everything else one could um, to try to find happiness, even at that young of an age. And you know, I, I really felt like I had run out of options, and so I had to just sit. And um, I, had, I had some faith and some confidence in the power of just sitting and doing nothing. But I didn't have any wonderful experiences or anything like that. I just thought, you know, it kind of on some odd level made sense to me to just stay put and observe the whole thing and see what could shift through doing nothing. But on this particular trip, we were um, in this hotel, and in the morning, someone came out and started playing this Burmese instrument that I had never seen before, but it was a really, really beautiful and interesting instrument. And so we got interested in the instrument instrument, and interested in what the words were because the words were in Burmese. So at one point, asking this couple and our friend what was being played, what music was being played, and the title of the song was Life in Samsara. So it was a song about people um, getting on a train and taking the train ride and then getting off at a train station, living a life, getting back on the train, taking the train ride, getting off at a train station, living another life, getting back on the train, living on the train, taking the train ride, getting off of the train, at the train station, living a life. You get the idea, you know? The endless round of birth and death. And I remembered, I think it was because I was touched by this older couple and I started thinking about my own parents and how when I began to practice in my, in my early 20s, and you know I don't want to sound um, too idealistic about this because I had a complicated relationship with both parents. Luckily, uh, the last 15 years of both of their lives, everything ironed out, and it was a very beautiful, um, free relationship uh, for those 15 years before both of them died. But it was interesting because both of them got better as they got older. 
know, a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of torment dropped away. Sometimes people get worse; they they got better. So anyway, but I was thinking about when I was that age and I was looking at why I was practicing because you know I didn't have wonderful experiences that were inspiring me. I more just had a either desperation or confidence that sitting and doing nothing had to work. But what I remembered is that something that did inspire me is I realized that my parents were going to die at some point. And then I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to go through lifetime after lifetime after lifetime and my parents are going to die over and over again. And it it actually inspired me. It actually made me... Um, stay on the path. Um, I mean, there were other reasons as well, but it was quite an inspiring thought to me that I didn't want to go through that kind of pain over and over again. I wanted to get off the wheel. The Buddha speaks of life as an uneven path that challenges us to walk evenly. You know, that life itself is uneven. It's bumpy by its very nature. When we talk about the worldly winds, I mean, that's, that's pretty bumpy. But walking in life is inherently bumpy because of conditions clashing, because conditions are never going to be perfect, and they're never going to be able to give us what we want. So there's a basic kind of clash or colliding that happens. And so there's this basic kind of unevenness in life And it challenges us to walk evenly. To walk evenly is to turn our attention within and to test out the cliché that happiness lies within. All of us have heard that, that phrase over and over again. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we just are complacent about it all. Oftentimes, we are just looking and searching for something outside of ourselves to stay stable. You know, something really wonderful and pleasant and beautiful outside of ourselves. We may discover this, and then it changes. So we're always, it's not that we don't discover the beautiful and um, the positive, and it's not that conditions don't come together for us at times in really remarkable and great ways. They do. The problem is that everything is always changing. The conditions do not stay the same. And then we find ourselves feeling disappointed and angry and betrayed by life when actually that's just the nature of conditions. So testing this cliché that happiness lies within is part of our exploration on this path. Now, of course, initially, instead of happiness, when we begin this path, and of course for some years, we just see the tangle. We just see, maybe more clearly, but we do see it, we see the confusion we recognize the ways that we get caught in inwardly arguing with how life is. We see the heartache. We see the self-doubt. We really see the tangle much more than a whole lot of peace. And we aren't swayed. You know, we aren't swayed by the confusion. 
We aren't pushed around by the heartache. We aren't bullied by the inner arguments. We don't stop practicing simply because there's doubt. It doesn't sway us. And here we are. We continue on. And we sit very quietly. We sit very quietly. We stay still. We observe everything coming and going. We sit in the midst of it all. And we add drops of loving kindness into into the whole thing. Almost like homeopathy. We don't need to have tons. We don't need to have a whole lot. We don't have to have gushes of loving kindness. Just dropperfuls. Really like a homeopathic kind of thing. We add drops of loving kindness, of affection, of friendliness into the whole thing. And then we listen to the silence. We relax and we soften. And we sustain our attentiveness with patience. Honest in experience and feeling what is right there in front of us. Not looking for something in the future. Not lost and behind ourselves in the past. But present and awake in the here and now. Honest in facing what is with the ally of kindness accompanying us. You know, don't go in there alone. You know, one always wants the ally of metta, of loving kindness, of affection when we look at how things are. And the tangle begins to untangle itself. We don't actually do the untangling, thank goodness. It would be way too much work. The tangle begins to untangle itself through our earnestness in staying still, steady, sustaining our attentiveness, adding these drops of metta. One obstruction that we notice very clearly is that so often we believe our thoughts to be true. We believe maybe each and every thought at times to be real, to be absolute, to be accurate. And then we begin, of course, and we continue to question our thoughts instead of just assuming that they are telling us the truth when they are not. When we question our thoughts, when we're willing to look at thinking as an object of meditation and not just assume that it's the truth of things, It opens to a deeper truth. What we begin to see is that on a certain level, thoughts are bubbles. On a certain level, thoughts are currents of energy. They seem so real. They cause so much trouble to ourselves and others. But on a certain level, they are completely without substance. They are completely empty. One Zen master calls thinking secretions. So, you know, how can you take responsibility for that? It's kind of like drooling. It's a natural function. Just as the body does its thing, and we don't have any say-so about that, and sometimes as we get older we have less and less say-so, 
The brain is the same way. Yeah? The brain is the same way. It's just secreting thoughts. And so to look at thinking in this way, there is a great deal of freedom. We see the distinction between thoughts that are believed in versus wisdom that is intuited in the field of silence. So there might be Dharma thoughts, there might be wise intentions, there might be a thoughtfulness looking into the deeper truths of life. But this is within a field of silence and it's wisdom. So it's both complete and utter silence and sometimes a thought comes along with it or you know, a number of thoughts come along. But that is quite different than thoughts that are not useful, not functional, have nothing to do with the here and now, have nothing to do with peacefulness or depth or liberation of heart. Dogen, a great, great Zen master, said, truth is perfect and complete in itself. It is not something newly discovered. It has always existed. Truth is not far away. It is nearer than near. There is no need to attain it, since not one of your steps leads away from it. Don't follow the advice of others. Rather, learn to listen to the voice within yourself. Your body and mind will become one, and you will realize the unity of all things. Even the slightest movement of your conceptual thinking will prevent you from entering the palace of wisdom. That doesn't mean that thinking in and of itself is a problem. It means believing in the solidity, the permanence of particular conceptual thoughts. When there is awareness, when there is mindfulness, there is truthfulness. It's inherent in being awakened, aware, because we are present with what is instead of being lost in our thoughts. We're here, fresh, awake. Even if we're sleepy, it's okay. You know, we can still be awake in the midst of that sleepiness as long as we're not preoccupied or lost in our thoughts. When we see clearly when we see things as they are, there is a greater degree of loving-kindness of metta because we see our beliefs about how we think things are that have been clung to for so long. You know, the belief, I am bad, that we believe in so firmly. Thoughts of unworthiness that we think are accurate and true. Thoughts about other people you are this or that, you are a terrible person inherently. They are like this, they are like that. You know, coming to conclusions or uh, generalizations. And it's all based on this idea, because I think it, it is so. But is it? Is a wisdom question. Is it? Who or what is this sense of I Isn't this sense of I, when we look more closely and aren't clouded or befuddled, isn't it just another thought? Isn't it just the thought of I? Kind of like this scarecrow that we get scared of or a beautiful appearance that we get attracted to. 
But again, isn't it just another thought? Don't thoughts arise on their own, unbidden and shameless, as one of my colleagues says. He always talks about thoughts as being shameless without shame, and I'm sure all of us in this room knows what he's talking about. When we see this, when we see into the true nature of thinking, how confused the mind can be, it motivates us to speak truthfully, to speak the truth, because otherwise there's a greater degree of inner confusion, and the tangle gets ever more tangled. Now, the tangle, when we don't speak truthfully to others, but also when we don't speak truthfully to ourselves, the tangles become ever more knotted. And it contributes to our own confusion and to the confusion of others. Mistruths are often perceived as worse than the original action that we wanted to cover up. And it leads away from the sense of completion of inner wholeness. Truthfulness means to be true to ourselves, to be true to our values, our priorities, and our aspirations in life. On retreat, there is nothing to do, as we know. know, There is actually nothing to do. We do this sitting, we do this walking, but for people who don't know what we're doing, if they came in and observed us, they would say they're doing nothing. What are they accomplishing? What are they buying? What are they selling? What are they doing? We're actually doing nothing. It takes a bit to understand the, uh, the walking, especially when people do walk slow because it looks like sleepwalking when actually it's awake walking. You know? But it looks like sleepwalking. It's a very odd thing. So because there's nothing to do, we have this chance of observing. That's our job here. Whatever it is that happens, our work, our job, is to observe, is to continue to take a step back and to be aware of what's happening and to trust in awareness. So this allows us to observe our habits and our patterns. It helps us to observe where we want to dwell, You know, where we want to dwell is okay. It's not something to judge or assess or measure or condemn. But we do definitely want to know where we like to dwell, where the mind wants to go, likes to go. And as well, what we want to push away. And honesty like this is essential for awakening. So... It's not easy. It's not easy to be honest with ourselves. It's not easy to be truthful with ourselves. It's sometimes quite daunting. And because it's not so easy, resolve is just as essential as truthfulness is. It is difficult at times to continue to observe, to sustain the observing approach to continue through thick and thin, the good and the bad, the pleasurable and the difficult, the unpleasant. And we have to meet it all without any hidden corners. The Buddha was known 
as someone who was completely open, completely porous, completely transparent. And that's what we are as well. Over and over again, we are making the unconscious conscious. Slowly, gradually, and sometimes in bigger chunks, it depends. But we are making that which is unconscious conscious so that all of the torments of heart can be seen, revealed to us, and dissolved and transmuted. Other words for this quality of resolve, because sometimes I think it helps to hear um, different words because we all have conditioning around language. So other words are perseverance or tenacity, constancy, courage, is another word. Dedication, aspiration, determination, steadiness, commitment, vow. These are all words for resolve. And without resolve, nothing is really possible on this path because we stop practicing. When things are hard, we just don't practice. And then we don't find our way through into what the promise of this path genuinely is. And it is quite lawful. If you practice, things will shift. Not on our timetable, but they will shift. If we don't, they won't. It's quite lawful in this way. Some of us in our daily life practice only when conditions are okay. Only when the conditions in our life are okay. You know, when our life isn't falling apart, that's when we practice. And then when our life does fall apart, that's when we don't practice. We can't practice. We don't know how to practice. Others of us, it's the opposite. You know, we only practice when our life is falling apart. And then when it comes back together again, then we don't feel that we need to practice anymore. Everything's okay. But either of these approaches, of course, as we know, isn't wise. And we need to approach the dimension that we're not familiar with. So if we're used to practicing only when our life falls apart, we need to really work with a daily practice when things are going well, or things are at least okay. And the opposite is is true. If we don't practice when things are really difficult, then we're, we, won't, we won't move through the difficulties in life from a Dharma point of view. You know, we'll, we'll get over it in some way. Things will change. Conditions will change. Life will shake itself out in a different way. Some of us know this just because of having lived for a certain number of years. We do have wisdom simply because of having lived. But Dharma wisdom is different. You know, if we approach the difficult when life has fallen apart and we use everything as material for awakening. It's a completely different thing. We don't just come into things being better at some point just because things do change and things get worse and things get better. But instead we're using the very elements of the difficulty to wake up with. And so we come out the other end not just to things being better or things being okay, because as I say, oftentimes that does happen. Things get worse, they get better, they get worse, they get better. You know, things like that do happen. But if we're using it all from the perspective of 
um, the wanting to learn the deep lessons of life that sustain us whether things are good or whether things are bad, whether things have fallen apart or whether things are really beautiful and positive for us in our lives. We touch something within us that doesn't have to do with good or bad, doesn't have to do with life being pleasant or life being difficult. We touch that which cannot be destroyed. And this is what can come out of practicing when things are really difficult. In other words, there's a trans, a real transformation that can take place where we don't just come into conditions being more pleasant and, oh, finally, you know, and then we kind of rest a bit, as one would, because of having gone through difficulties. But instead, it gives us this opportunity, this invitation to find that which is beyond hope and fear, to find that which is immeasurable, to discover that which cannot be destroyed, no matter what the conditions in life may be. We may notice that we have time in our lives to get to that which is important, but maybe not to that which is truly important. I'll read you a a poem by Naomi Shahib Nye. It's called The Art of Disappearing. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. Someone telling you in a loud voice they once wrote a poem. Greasy sausage balls on a paper plate. Then reply. If they say we should get together, say why. It's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees. The monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. When someone you haven't seen in ten years appears at a door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. No, you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. This is why retreats are revelations. They reveal what is of true importance in our lives. And resolve is based on priorities and values. It's essential because it's not easy to meet what is. When we are faced with stress, when we are faced with transitions, confusion, anxiety, heartache, what to do? And we really actually... It's not really a rhetorical question. We really want to find out what we do do in these kinds of situations, whether minor stress, which there can be a huge amount of minor stresses in anyone's daily life, or those times of great change and transition where there is really major stress occurring. What do we do? It's a very important question to inquire into because it's not the same for everyone. Some of us collapse when we are faced with stress. We kind of kind of collapse in on ourselves. Some of us deny that it's even happening. We just get lost in activities and we make ourselves busy so that we won't have to acknowledge what's going on. 
Some of us, of course, medicate at these times. Some of us try to escape what's happening. Some of us try to distract ourselves. Some of us dramatize what's going on so we find ourselves in hysteria. Some of us fall back on the belief that I deserve this. Whatever stress is happening, it's because I deserve it. And these are all efforts at coping, but they don't really work. When there is resolve, with any degree of resolve, when there is difficulty or stress, which happened for everyone throughout the day today because it is stressful to meet oneself from moment to moment, when there is panic, we can remember calm. You know, when we start to panic, we can call upon calm. We can remember calm. We can bring in calming practices, such as remembering to be with the breathing or remembering to settle ourselves into our bodies. Now, bringing in a calming practices instead of continuing on with the panic. When there is confusion, because oftentimes it's panic and then confusion, when there is confusion, we can remember clarity. We can begin to see thinking as empty. That's a way to become clearer. When there is an inner flailing, casting about for a solution, trying to think of how we're going to solve a particular problem, who we're going to talk to. And of course, it's good to talk to people. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying when this flailing about comes about, when we're casting about, it's like we're always looking outside of ourselves. And we forget that in that moment, we actually have the inner resources to support ourselves. So, I mean, check it out, because sometimes it does kind of follow this kind of of, um, sequence where there is panic and then confusion, and then we find ourselves flailing about and casting about for some kind of a solution or resolution to the situation that we're experiencing. And so, remembering calm, remembering clarity, and with the inner flailing, recognizing that in that moment we can look within. We can test out the cliche, does happiness lie within? And we can just feel it. We can experience it in the here and now. I have a a really close friend, a really good, good Dharma sister. And years ago, she was in a situation where her life had fallen apart and she just had a very, very bad break up with someone that she loved and um, she just didn't um, she was trying, she had practiced for a long time before this and so she was trying to bring all of her dharma strategies to bear on the situation and she was doing her best to practice with it and she came to talk with me as one of her closest friends and you know I kind of heard the whole thing and I heard the strategies and the this and the that and it just seemed to me like you know she was doing her best but it was kind of like she was trying to be a good yogi in the whole situation. And so I remember what I told her is, could she drop all that and just feel it? You know, would it be possible to not meditate and to not be a meditator with all of this conditioning around meditation for most of her life? Could she actually let that all go and not be a meditator? 
and not even meditate, but simply feel what you was feeling. And it, I guess, helped her immeasurably sometime later when I was going through the similar kind of time she was able to offer it back to me. You know, this this um, advice to just feel it and not be a meditator and not meditate. So that's what I'm saying. Don't be a meditator. Just experience whatever you experience with open-hearted attentiveness. This is what is going to be healing What is wise resolve? The Buddha said that wise resolve is the resolve to release and relinquish. It's the resolve to free the heart from ill will. And it's the resolve to be harmless in this world with oneself and others. And this is what is called wise resolve. It's an attitude. May I be open to things as they are, come what may. And it's the resolve to follow through, dedicating ourselves to uncovering an unconditioned peace within our hearts, determined to continue, determined to remember awareness, to stop and look, and to contemplate unceasingly. Now, when I say that, of course, that's not going to be so. It's the aspiration that it be so that matters. You know, it's picking ourselves up when we find ourselves gone. It's being awake and aware when we find ourselves preoccupied and lost. Contemplate unceasingly. It is very much a case sometimes of going against the flow. You know, I remember when I first sat my first long retreat, three-month retreat, when I was in my early 20s, and I remember my family taking it quite personally. You know, my father sulking, you know, because of sitting a three-month retreat. And yet, when we know we need to do these things, we have to um, take counsel within ourselves. We have to trust ourselves when we know what we need to, to do. And it is going against the flow very often. This path doesn't have to do with gain and becoming. It has to do with realizing how things are, which is actually utterly benign. Happening each moment, always in the now, and not trying to get somewhere, actually trying to get here. Rather than trying to get somewhere, we are learning how to get here. This is a poem by Donna Fouds called Awakening Now. Why wait for your awakening The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid and my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. 
Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. What are we devoted to, and what would be more worthy of our devotion? What are our semi-conscious vows? I vow to hate myself every day. This is not a worthy vow. It is possible to have pleasure without being devoted to pleasure. It is possible to have comfort without being devoted to comfort. Some of you may be familiar with what are called the Bodhisattva vows. There are two that are very wonderful. One of the Bodhisattva vows, I vow to deliver innumerable sentient beings. This is a great vow of metta, of loving kindness. At the same time, from another point of view, there is no I and there are no beings to save. And yet, this is our vow. I vow to cut off endless vexations. Vexations means torments of heart, whatever inwardly torments the heart. And this is a beautiful vow. Vexations are endless. We might as well give it up. You know, I vow to cut off endless vexations. And yet, I vow to cut off. I vow to understand. I vow to let dissolve. I vow to release and relinquish and let go of. Yeah? No matter how many they are, not counting. Not counting, not measuring. There will always be obstacles in this world of phenomena. As Suzuki Roshi says, even though waves arise, the essence of your mind is pure. It is just like clear water with a few waves. Actually, water always has waves. Waves are the practice of the water. So we are living this path. We are living this journey. We are living the truth. And it is, of course, challenging and difficult and beautiful all at once. It is ever more possible in training our hearts. There's a Peruvian proverb, little by little, one walks far. Little by little, one walks far. Be aware that awareness and wisdom are doing the work, and don't fight against yourself. Just keep remembering what's most important to you, and then the tangle will untangle itself. Every year, the center that I am in residence in, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, we have a bereavement ceremony where the community comes together and people bring pictures of loved ones that they've lost to death or other reasons throughout that year or just unresolved situations from a long time ago. So we all get together and we engage in this kind of ritual, this simple ritual to remember our dear ones. And we um, we have candles as being part of it. It's the only time that my heart is in my throat because we use real candles and we're on the third floor. So somebody is armed with the fire extinguisher and ready to leap. Um, it's a little bit dicey, but I, I really like the, you know, the, the real light. So at the end, this last time when we had our last bereavement ceremony, I, I asked the group, everybody goes around and just says what gift the person they have lost has given them. You know, so it's very, very simple. What are the gifts that this particular person that you have loved who has loved you, what have they given you? 
So this time we did the same thing, but at the end I asked the group how they would want to be remembered if we were remembering them on this particular night. And so I just would like to ask you to take a few moments right now and just to ask yourself, what are your vows? To ask yourself, what are your deepest vows? You don't have to think about it. Let it bubble up from the heart. What are your heartfelt wishes in this life? Very quiet, resonating with your heart, letting the answer or the answers bubble up. A questioner asked the Buddha, Life seems a tangle, an inner tangle, and an outer tangle. This generation is hopelessly tangled up. And so I asked the Buddha this question, Who will succeed in disentangling this tangle? The Buddha replied, When a wise one, thoughtful and good, develops a greater consciousness, she or he will understand the tangle. As a truth follower, ardent and wise, he or she will succeed in disentangling the tangle. May all beings be aware that there is a tangle. May all beings have the opportunity to do the work of untangling the tangle. May those of us who untangle the tangle Help others to untangle their tangles.